this is Steve Balton. You're here on My Turning Point for a milestone episode. Today is the 100th episode of the show. And I always knew that I wanted to do something special to commemorate reaching 100 episodes. So several months ago, I interviewed a friend of mine. And when I was trying to think of the right interview for the 100th episode, I went back and asked this guy if we could use the interview. Though he hasn't really done any public interviews in some time. And being one of the nicest guys in music, my Chemical Romance frontman Gerard Way said, yes, absolutely, we could use it. So here, for the 100th episode of My Turning Point, is an hour with one of the coolest, greatest guys in music, Gerard Way, talking about his friendship with Billy Corgan, the My Chemical Reunion, being a comic book artist. And the occasion for the interview was talking about the song, Welcome to the Black Parade. You're gonna learn a lot about the song. This was an amazing conversation, and I could not be more grateful to the coolest guy in music, Gerard Way, for letting me use this interview. So I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Dude, it's all good. It's so good to catch up with you. It's been a long-ass minute. How you doing? Oh, my God. What's up, dude? Yeah. <laughs> How are you? I'm, I'm really good. I'm really good. I know, I, I know you have 8 million projects going on. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. There you I go. mean, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. You've turned, I'm trying to think of like a comparable, you know, artist. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. You've kind of turned into a cross between like a John Lennon Mm-hmm. And a a you know an ASAP Rocky that guy who just is doing eight million different projects. <laughs> but you know what's yeah. funny about that is I've talked about this with so many artists. Mm-hmm. It keeps music fresh for them. So do you find yeah. that when you're doing music, it's actually more enjoyable? Yeah. In fact, actually, the, the thing that I did was um, after the solo run, I really was like, okay, well, that I I was really happy with that, and it was a really fun tour, and. Um, the shows like continued to grow and got bigger and bigger. And after that though, I was like, what am I going to do that again? You know, like, (laughs) so I, but I wasn't really inspired to write music. So I decided I was going to be like a comic writer and just focus on that for like three, four years. So, (laughs) so it made me miss music eventually. And now I'm making it all the time. So. Nice. Yeah. Well, yeah, you always have it. And it's funny because, I mean, obviously, it's been a minute. There's, you know, we're talking about Welcome to the Black Parade today, specifically yeah. for this book. There's yeah. 8,622,000 things, of course, that I would want to ask you about because it's yeah. been so long. Yeah. You know, it's funny, though, dude. I will tell you because I did a Forbes piece about the, the Shrine show. And mm-hmm. I said this at the time. My favorite moment in that show was when you were on stage and you were like, we really didn't know if we would ever be here again. And I loved that because it was 100% authentic. It wasn't, you know... Like when an artist is up there and like, oh, hello, Cleveland. It yeah, was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so for you, just as a fan, and we can keep all yeah. this shit off the record. I'm just curious, how yeah. much fun was it actually to be up there again? It was the most fun I'd ever had playing a My Chem show, you know. It was the most fun. And, you know, over the years, one of the things... Maybe we'll get into this in the talking about the song. I don't know if we will. Um, But one of the things I I started after the band broke up and I had a lot of time to think and change and grow and all that stuff. I started to have like a real issue with control. So I started to kind of examine my own part in that and, and think about like playing big shows and kind of working a crowd and hyping a crowd up. And we did always try to keep our shows really authentic, almost like you didn't know what was going to happen up there. Um, night to night, even if we played the same songs. But 
I, I, so when it came time to do my chem again, I had said to myself, okay, I'm not going to like control the audience. I'm not going to like direct them. I'm not really going to work them. I'm just going to let them do what they want to do. And so it made that show even more rewarding because I wasn't, you know, trying to coax the audience into, into exploding or doing whatever we wanted them to do. And that just let them do their thing. So. Well, uh, you know, that's such a fascinating thing too, because I, I think, you know, it's so hard to anticipate, you know, what a response is going to be like. I remember talking about this dead mouse once, right. You know, and with that, you know, cause he takes years between albums because he's a perfectionist too. Right. And it's like, no one had a fucking clue when Daft Punk took five years off, they would become the biggest band in the world. You can't calculate that. You have no idea what the response is going to be. You just do your shit. And yeah. it's like Daft Punk, or I've interviewed them too. They're perfectionists. They're like, we're going to take six years between albums and right. then we're going to headline fucking Coachella because all of a sudden everybody's just built for this. You know, yeah. so I mean, I, I'm just no way that you could have known in between that. Okay, cool. Then we're going to come back and sell out four nights at the forum. Yeah, yeah. That was, that was really, you know, uh, I was just, I was just so grateful and just really just blown away by that. You know, I was just like, when I saw like the shows, they just kept selling out and I was just like, and we kept adding them and then just kept selling again. And I was like, I was like, wow, something happened in the years that this band went away, you know? Well, that does segue really nicely into talking about Welcome to the Back Parade, the song. But before we do that, there's one thing I have to ask you about is you're talking yeah. about the control thing. Cause it's so interesting because, you know, I know you just did a piece with Billy Corgan who I've been friends with for so yeah. many years. And Billy is one of the smartest guys in music. Yeah. So I just have to ask as a fan, yeah. You know, if there are things that when you talk with him that you learn and then you can apply or, or just from watching them over the years or watching artists like that. Absolutely. I can absolutely say that. And it does relate to the control thing, because anytime that I, I saw I saw the pumpkins play uh, during the melancholy tour with my brother and we, we saw that makeup show in New York um, that was you know, tragic before it was a makeup show. It was, you know, when the keyboardist died. And uh, I noticed that the, the focus really became on the kind of doom rock they were making in the wall of sound, as opposed to somebody kind of like, you know, being a front person and kind of, um, you know, playing with the audience, working with them, you know, collaborating with them, I guess, in that sense, as you'd see a lot of people do. But I, oh man, he's, yeah, he's so smart. And he's said so much to me over the years in the times that I've hung out with him. Um, he's just been really good to me. And like, when I moved to LA, he, um, he, he would go to like guitar center vintage rooms with me and stuff to try out amps. Cause I was looking for like a heavier sound, like a new sound. And he just would go with me and, uh, he would just, you know, try the stuff out with me and I would go visit him and he was making music and I'd show him like a new guitar I got and then he would take it and just be like, blah, 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 you know, yeah, and he'd hand it back and he'd be like, oh, this is a good guitar. And uh, anyway, but, you know, he's given me advice over the years. Some of it I wasn't ready to hear. Some of it, you know, some of it I had to find out for myself and things like that, but. Well, I think that's something that always happens. And that's, and that is the perfect segue to tie this. Cause I think that's one of the things that look, man, I mean, what interested me about this initially songs evolve so much over the years. They absolutely, the analogy I used, I was talking with uh, David Page from Toto yesterday about the song Africa. Okay. And it's like, you know, look, a song goes, it, it's like, 
right? Because I was talking with him and I was talking with Verity and White from Earth, Wind & Fire last week about the song September. And both of them were saying it took like 20 years for those songs to reach the status they did. And right. it's funny because like, you basically, using the analogy that songs are like kids, mm-hmm. right? Then it's like, this is kind of what happens when, you, when the song, you know, goes off to college and takes on its own life. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it's interesting. Let's go back to the beginning though with the recording. And did you, because that's kind of where I started with everybody, you know, and it's such an interesting thing because like I was talking with Adam Clayton from U2 last year, right? We we're talking about with one, he's like, we kind of knew right away with that song. He's like, you don't always know, but sometimes you just know right away with Welcome to the Black Parade. When you were recording, did you know that there was something special there? Did you feel that it was just something that was resonating in a way that was maybe a little different or that was connecting with you guys personally? You know, that's interesting. Yes. I mean, we knew, well, we knew it was special. You know, the song actually had started as this song called The Five of Us Are Dying, which is like a riff on an old Twilight Zone episode title. Um, And uh, it was this kind of, you know, it was it was these chords we really liked. It was kind of a driving kind of punk song. But as the concept of the record started to come together, we realized it was a special song, but I started to realize during the the actual tracking of the album that there was no song that kind of uh, in, in introduced or encapsulated some of the the concepts on the record in that way. You know, there was definitely stuff that was capturing certain conceptual elements like hell and and being raised Catholic and uh, mothers and you know they had a lot of stuff there's like a war theme and um but there was no like black parade song and i i had kind of known that that's what i wanted to call the album and so it was actually really hard song to record because um you know we were in some ways so used to the original version um, that when it came time to like start changing things, it was just very difficult, you know. Um, uh, and nobody kind of knew if it was the right direction, and you know, um, and things like that. But then I started to kind of envision this parade, and so then sir, I wanted to bring in certain elements, like I would I would ask Bob like play a marching beat, and but it you know when it really when it really started to come together is when um, I was. I had this melody in my head, this piano melody. And um, I went, I was like, Rob, I, I have this, I think I have the way I want to start this song. Um, so when the actual tracking happened is when it started to come together and, and really flesh out and things got, as sections got added and things changed. So I, so we had, there was a piano in the studio. We were at this place called El Dorado in Burbank, which we liked it. And anyway, so there was a piano in this side room. So I went over there with Rob and he sat at the piano and I basically sung out all the notes, you know, cause I, I can't really play piano. Like I could, I could cheat my way through some stuff and I could write parts. I, I sit with keyboards actually a lot right now and I can write parts, but um, at the time, especially, I just had very little experience with, with playing keys. So I sung it out and Rob just followed it. And then we had that and then it started to come together. And then I put then, you know, we put the vocal on and, and so then we built this like introduction for this song uh, with the, with a marching beat and a parade beat. And, and it really set the stage, I think for the song to become something much greater than 
just let's say a driving punk song, you know, um, and then it, it, you know, that song since we were envisioning this kind of parade that comes for you, like death, um, the song just got more ambitious and grew and grew. Um, and then just started throwing a ton of stuff on it. You know, I, I know when Chris Lord Algae mixed the song at the time he had told us it was the most tracks he had ever had to mix in a song. Now I'm sure in the years later, something beat that, but at the time it was the most tracks he had ever mixed. So that's so funny is I remember the interviews we did back in 2006 for AOL sessions about this. Mm-hmm. And one of the things we talked about was, cause you were one of the first artists to bring this up to me. Of course, now, you know, you talk about the top bands of all time and, and Queen is right at the top of iconic bands, but you were one of the earlier artists to mention to me that influence. It's funny because as you're talking to me about this, it's interesting because then of course I think of Queen and some of the stuff they did. And it's funny when you look back at Black Parade now, are there, because this is again, another thing is songs change over time. You have distance, you have perspective. Mm-hmm. Are there songs that you hear you know, the influence of in that song or, or just in the sort of the technical aspect. It's funny because another song, as you mentioned, the piano thing to me, one of the songs that comes to my mind, and I don't know if you're a fan or not. It's funny. A lot of artists can't stand him, but I fucking love Billy Joel. And I think mm-hmm. of a song like Scenes from an Italian Restaurant yeah. and yeah. the complexity of that song. But it's yeah. funny, I say a lot of artists, like he's not cool to a lot of people. To me, I think he's one of the best songwriters of all time. Right. Um, yeah, I, I actually think Billy Joe is a great songwriter and, and there was periods in my life when I was younger where I was definitely listening to greatest hits and stuff like that. Um, and I know Ray really likes him too. Um, yeah, just a great songwriter. Um, so for you, are there, are there artists that you go back and you hear that, you know, 15 years later that you hear those influences in the song and especially even when it came time to play the show at the shrine and revisit this material live. Oh yeah, and and you know, Bohemian Rhapsody was always an influence on this song, you know, just kind of these big kind of sweeping section changes and things like that. But at the same time, I had realized when we were working on it, we had kind of realized like, well, you can't remake Bohemian Rhapsody. You could you could be a little inspired by it, but uh, you know, but we we can't try to do that. Like, so I could be inspired and say, well, I wanted to start with a piano and vocal and things like that. And so, you know, there's what I like to do sometimes in music is to have, you know, to be inspired by things from the past. But what you present people is something that has a really positive familiarity to it. You know, like like it gives you the almost like something that gives you the feeling of something without having to be like it, you know. Um, And that was one of those songs that you know, we realized, well, we're not going to copy Bohemian Rhapsody. We're not going to do that, but we're going to make this big kind of epic thing like Bohemian Rhapsody in that way. Um, and I think it, yeah. Yeah. So, but I like a degree of familiarity. Like I, I like a degree of bringing somebody, bringing people music that kind of um, triggers something in them, like an old feeling from the past without like, completely ripping the thing off you know um yeah to me these are little nods and that's why they're almost they it almost becomes like putting easter eggs in the song there's these little nods to things that you know when you put them in the song you're almost saying like we really like queen <laughs> you know we like we're really trying to honor stuff and that that's why queen the pumpkins have been a big influence um st- i still explore pumpkins stuff you know and 
and explore those themes and sonic, you know, um, landscapes of theirs. Um, but uh, yeah, that song, it was interesting. Like we sat together, we were in the Paramore and we just started to work on this kind of punk song together, you know? And actually it always did have a piano intro when it was the five of us are dying. It was, uh, but we didn't have anybody playing keys in the Paramore. So I think it was done on guitar. Um, and it had like this piano intro, but you know, we jammed on that together. We kind of all put that together. And then it just, when it came time to conceptually harness it, and when it came time to really put a lyric on that chorus, you know, um, I had thought deeply about what that lyric could be. Um, and, you know, in my head, I was sitting with Craig Aronson, who was our A&R, we were in like the lounge room. It was a very small lounge. It had like a little bed and like a couple chairs and a TV. Um, and uh, so playing the song, I don't remember how. Obviously there was, I don't think, were cell phones? Yeah, I think cell phones. So we're playing the song and then I started to sing the lyric and the vocal melody of the chorus to Craig. And he loved it. Like he like uh, totally, and he was, basically our you know one of our biggest or the biggest cheerleader we had at the label like he he loved our band you know and we we miss him very much and uh his enthusiasm was like insane in a in a great way um but i remember singing it i was like well this is what i have for the chorus because the chorus didn't have anything on it and it did have something i didn't like i was like yeah and you could hear that on the original demo the five of us are dying i was like i was like yeah, i don't like this kind of it's kind of, it's a little bit like stuff we heard before. It's, you know. Um, so anyway, so then he loved it. And then I was like, okay, I'm going to go sing this on this song. And then it had the chorus, vocal and lyric. And, you know, and then in the middle section, I was like, I want it to sound like there's like a, 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 an army of like orphans from Annie or, <laughs> or um or Oliver or something like I, I just I wanted this and but it's like traditionally kind of difficult to get uh children together to sing on an album uh it's just a lot of it's a lot of steps and it's you know anytime you bring stuff it's funny whenever you I've heard songs that have like children choirs and things like that but whenever you bring that stuff up in the studio you don't realize how much of a challenge it is to get them all together, to get the clearance from their parents. There's a lot of factors, you know? So a lot of times when you have those ideas, people like producers or whoever will say, well, let's try to create that without <laughs> bringing, in, bringing in like a couple hundred kids. And so I had done all the vocals for that. And I think the guys sang a little bit in those vocals too. And then we just like pitch change them and all to kind of create this, uh, this, uh, wall of of children um singing and it doesn't sound exactly like children um but it conveys like a similar energy all right so let's take it to the stage now do you remember the first time you guys played the song live yes okay so this is really interesting about the song so okay so we know what the song means now and we know what the song became and we well we're it's still developing you kind of it's you know that's what's interesting about black parade it still kind of grows and develops but the first time we played that song was an extremely awkward experience. So 
the first time we'd ever played it really in a live sense was for the VMAs. And, uh, you know, MTV was like, well, we, you know, we, we have like no room in the show proper, but you could, you guys could play a song before the, the VMA starts. <laughs> <laughs> and so we were like, okay, well, you know, we had all agreed. Okay. Well, we're going to play welcome to the black parade. But um, we had played the song, not we, we rehearsed it obviously, but we hadn't played it that much, you know, like we just played it however many times we had to practice before we did it. So you got to picture this. So we get to this building. It's a real high rise building. I can't remember what the name of the building was. It had a name, but we go up there. All the gear is up there. Now there's this little, very short kind of stage thing that I think they built, but so this is like the top of this building. And I think there was helicopter shots of it really high. And they had taken the glass away from the edges because they didn't like the way it looked. So they had removed the barriers to keep you from falling off. Um, now, if you fell, it was a, you, I don't know if you, you would have gotten seriously injured. You wouldn't have hit the pavement because there was a landing, but the landing was really far away. And I started to develop a serious fear of heights. So we're up here in this environment with like all these people around too. And we had actually, um, we had said, okay, well, let, maybe we can get some kids to sing with us. Um, so we get some kids and who are very nice and, uh, you know, very professional. And we put them in skeleton makeup. So we have this, we have two elements happening, like a couple elements happening that just we hadn't done before. Anyway, I'm like rambling. But anyway. No, it's all good. Yeah, this is fascinating. Right. So we have these kids. We had not played this song uh, as much as a band would like to, to get super, well, we, we did our best. You know, we did our best in the time we had. Um, but the song is kind of unconventional. It's not like a lot of things you were hearing on the radio at the time. So I don't, I'm not sure it translated the first time we played it. And Rob was playing piano and uh, he was a bit nervous about that to play on TV. And this, the sound up there wasn't like powerful. It wasn't great. It was just, we just kind of made our way through this thing. And I remember at the time, I think the sentiment on the song from the general public was just kind of like, what was that? You know? <laughs> Like what? The, what was that? You know, there's like these kids in skeleton makeup, and they're wearing all these uniforms, and I I can't really understand the song. And that was the vibe I got. People were like, "Oh, that was great," but I was like, "I don't think it's translated." You know? That's um, so funny. So, because it's you know what's so interesting about that is that from almost every person I've talked to, everyone has the same response. It's like September, for example. Yeah. Was you know supposed to just be thrown on a on you know a greatest hits album that was never oh. intended to be right. an anthem. And Africa was hilarious because David Page was telling me yesterday he was like, "Oh, I started writing the song by myself and I played it for the guys in the band, and the guys in the band were like, that's going to sound great on your solo album.' Right, <laughs> right, right, right. You know, Amazing. so it's like, yeah, we're 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 not recording it, but have fun with that fucking song, yeah, yeah, you know." Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So at what point for you then did Black Parade start to translate and you realize like, okay, wait, maybe now people are catching on to this. Right. You know, do you remember the first time you played it in front of like, you know, on one of your tours, like in front of a live audience? 
I mean, yeah. not not at VMAs, but you know, not at VMAs. I don't think, unless my memory is faulty, I don't think we got to really play that live for people until the official Black Parade tour. Unless I'm wrong. Um, when did we? Get, no, did we? I don't remember if we started playing it on the road yet until the Black Parade tour, the big arena tour. Um, I remember you guys doing it again because I did the AOL sessions. Okay. And I remember you did a Halloween thing at House of Blues. Right. right, right, exactly. So because it was the first single and because it had kind of encapsulated the concept and themes of the record and because of the lyric um, being kind of meaningful to us, um, we would have to, because it was a single, we'd have to play it for mostly these taped performances. So we didn't really get to get it in front of a live crowd for some time. Um, and then during the, the official kind of Black Parade tour in arenas, you know, this thing started to happen. I noticed um, uh, when we would play it live and it, it was almost like um, the whole audience started to kind of sing all those words, you know which happens to any, like to a number, it can happen to a number of songs, but it started to feel like it had this power, you know? Um, and that big kind of intense intro leading into this, this full on force wall of sound driving kind of punk thing generally just kind of made all of us and the audience kind of lose our minds, you know, and, and get a little bit out of control. Um, but you know, as the, one of the, I think one of the most interesting things, and I've learned this in recent years, one of the most interesting things about the song is that it's uh, identifiable by one single note. Yeah. That G note on the piano. You, and, I, and recently I saw Andrew Lloyd Webber did a video where he discussed this. And he sat, he was sitting at a piano and he, he I think he played a bit of family opera He's like, yeah, it's one thing to kind of know a song by its opening melody. And he goes, and it's another thing to be able to identify a song by one note. And he played the G note and everybody was like, oh, that's Black Parade. And, and so that's, a, that's, pretty, that's something pretty crazy about the song is just hearing that single piano. And that's something that we saw live when we would play it. We, we would be there. We'd have to wait for it to kind of get quiet enough for people to hear it because a lot of times the audience was like, competing with um, our actual sound, you know? Like Me Mexico City, for example, um, I think the audience was louder than us. So we would have to let enough air, enough quiet happen, and then, you know, we'd just play that G note, and then it was just like... And it was crazy, just that single note, you know? That's so interesting. It's funny. So for you... And, you know, obviously talk about, well, let's talk about it in popular culture too, because it's funny, I'm looking at this now and it's like, have there been uses of it or things that really have blown you away? Like, for example, you know, I'm just looking at this and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has named it as one of the songs that shaped rock and roll. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. I didn't know that either until <laughs> I was just looking at the Wikipedia. I mean, it's funny. So for you, this is interesting because I was talking about this with like, you know, so for example, when I was talking with Verdine, he was talking about the fact that, you know, September obviously is one of the great wedding songs of all time. Right. So I was asking him for his wedding song. So, so since, you know, welcome to black parade is one of the songs that shaped rock and roll. What, what are the songs for you that shaped rock and roll? What are a couple of the other ones that you go back to? 
Well, to come back to the same song, you know, to come back to Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, I believe, and I think a lot of people in the world believe that to be the greatest rock song of all time, you know, um, for a number of reasons. Not only is it beautiful and heartbreaking, it takes all these insane risks. It broke every single rule. So I think that song, whether or not people tried to copy it, and again, I don't think very many people tried to copy Bohemian Rhapsody because you can't. You can't do that again. It's been done, you know? Right. Um, but I think it inspired so many musicians to kind of uh, take more risks and try unconventional things. And it's just, it, it, it really is one of the most heartbreaking openings to a song ever and endings, you know? Um, so I think that song absolutely shaped rock a lot, you know? Um, right. Right. Whether or not people could even achieve anything close or not, um, that, that to me is the greatest rock song of all time. Um, that's crazy that they said that about the song, the Rock Hall of Fame. That's crazy. Well, I'm looking at it. It's a list of 500 songs because now I'm just fucking curious to see what else is on there. You're in some damn good company, man. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny. Then, too, it's like you look at, for example, though, it was used by like... Um, Oh, what was it, man? You know, like the LA Kings and their Stanley Cup run. Yeah, yeah. They, they. That was interesting. Yeah, it was cool. We were very flattered by that. You know, um, they, uh, yeah, they started to use Black Parade, and we had heard about it. That was kind of the first usage I really remember. You know, right. Uh, uh, and that was many years later, obviously. So yeah, the Kings. You know, they're doing this thing, and we got put in. It wasn't. They didn't put us in a, it, it was an awkward situation because we're all from Jersey, <laughs> you know, and uh, our team is the Devils, you know, and they were like, will you guys come and play Black Parade for the Kings at, you know, this is like their song and they're going to win, you know, this is like a really big moment. And we were kind of like, I don't think we can because <laughs> even though some of us live here now, um, you know, we're, we're Jersey boys. So I, I think, so that, are you still, a, are you still a devil's fan? I, I am, but I, I am, but I don't, um, I don't get to watch hockey much, you know, um, when it was on, you know, I don't, I don't get to, but I like hockey. Hockey's probably the one sport. It's the one sport I've really been to see in person. And it's a sport that I really like. Um, I just don't know very much about it. I, I enjoy watching it, you know? All right. Well, here, here's a diplomatic tip for you. If this ever comes again, and this comes from one of the best. Neil Diamond and I were talking about Sweet Caroline and uh -huh. how that song has been adapted by so many teams. And he's like, you know what? He's like, I, well, I was joking. I'm like, so are the Red Sox? Because he grew up a Dodger fan and yeah. that's his team. So, and then the Red Sox, of course, have used that song in the seventh inning stretch for <clears throat> years. So I was like, are you, is the Red Sox now your, your secondary? He's like, that's my East Coast team now. He's like, yeah. I'm still a Dodger, but that's my East Coast. He's like, and he's like, and anybody who takes the song, I'm a fan of. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. So we were we were absolutely flattered and a fan of what they did with that song. We just we just weren't sure if we'd be able to pull off playing it live in LA for, for an <laughs> LA team. Uh, but like, for example, Mikey loves the Kings. Like when he moved here, he really embraced them and stuff. Um, um, so I'm looking at this list, by the way, of rock and roll songs that that shaped the that. And you're right between Mott the Hoople, All the Young Dudes, and Naughty by Nature, OPP. That's a pretty good list. Dude, All the Young Dudes <laughs> was a really big, so influential song to me. 
Um, there was times for sure where I was trying to write things that had that energy, you know? Oh yeah. No, I mean, it's funny cause I've talked about this with Joe Elliott a lot. He's like, that's a song that changed my life, you know? Yeah. yeah. That's everybody crazy. has, everybody has that song that, that, you know, just changes their life, you know, that yeah. first time you hear it. So it's interesting for you then. That brings us to, you know, when you hear fan responses to Welcome to the Black Parade, mm-hmm. it's funny. I met this girl online who lives in Argentina, right? And we became friends and she was telling me that, like, for example, her birthday every year, that was the song that her mom would wake her up with. Ah. On her birthday. And it's like, it's interesting because people always have these. My craziest still was Verdine telling me that people were actually trying to have their kids on September 21st. Oh so that was their birthday. I'm like, that's a little fucking insane to me. <laughs> but when you hear these stories or have there been ones that have really stood out to you the most of how people have incorporated the song into their lives? I, you know, I haven't. It's an interesting thing. Like, um, you know, yeah. So let's talk about what happens when you release a song, you know? So, okay. So this is how I kind of work. This is part of, this is my process basically, you know, whether I'm writing with the guys and we're writing my chem songs or, or I'm bringing something in or if I'm writing my own solo stuff, whatever, you know, uh, even back in the day, probably starting with revenge. Um, once you put something out, it is no longer yours and it is no longer your story. So, so while I'm working on something leading up to that release, it's, you know, for example, all I listened to for five months was Black Parade while we were making it. It was the music that excited me more than anything. It was the music that moved me more than anything else. It was, it was what I was all about. And then we released it. And then at that point, with all the songs we had done, like I let go of it. And I was just like, this is no longer ours. This is the world's. And they're going to do whatever they want with it. Um, so I don't listen anymore to that stuff. And the only time I hear it is when we play it live. Um, of course, I've heard it on the radio and stuff. And, and Lindsay, my wife, is so sweet. And she gets so excited when she hears my chemical romance on the radio, especially black parade. And, uh, um, but yeah, so I don't, I don't listen to these things anymore. And uh, basically in in addition to that, I don't really pay attention to, uh, the kind of reaction or, or I don't know the stories. Like, I don't know these stories about like this girl's birthday. And I don't, I don't hear stuff like that because years ago I, I, not too, not even too long ago, but more, yeah, like, uh, yeah, years ago, I had uh, realized that um, I needed to disconnect, you know, from opinion, from sentiment of something, some, uh, you know, so I don't like read reviews, I don't look at that stuff, you know, I just, I like to be I like to keep my channel as an output channel, not an input, you know? Right. I think that really keeps the art pure and uh, you're in a bubble to some extent, but I, I like it. It's just how I like to work, you know? Um, So I'm able to like really let go of stuff and let them have it, you know? Um, Well, I think that's very typical of most artists. I mean, as someone who interviews everyone in the fucking world, I mean, I can tell you that, you know, there's like a running joke of, you know, how do you tell the narcissistic sociopath 
the artist who listens to their own music, yeah. you know, but every so often still, it's like, it's funny. You'll hear stuff on social media or mm. fans will get to talk to you or whatever, but it's interesting because I, I see what you're saying. You're, it doesn't, uh, you don't really engage that much then on social media. It's not like you're looking at the comments and responses. And it's funny because I mean, you haven't done, you know, as soon as my chem came back, <laughs> you haven't done anything publicly or talked about it. So for you, do you feel like it's, so then let's take this one doing my welcome to the black parade at the shrine. Mm -hmm. Were you surprised then at the, you know, we talked about the response and, and all that, but then taking that particular song to that night, yeah, you know, and yeah. watching how it became sort of this, like, it's funny because I mean, you know, I looked it up and it was like K Rock's second biggest song of 2006 on alternative, mm -hmm. but it has become kind of a modern Bohemian Rhapsody. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I and I think it's not as ambitious as Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, it doesn't. But take, it, what, oh, sorry, not to interrupt. I was just going to say when I say in it, just in terms of the crowd response and in terms yeah, of yeah, 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 yeah. It is like that. Yes, it is like that. Um, uh, uh, you know, um, yeah. So we knew structuring the set list. We, you know, uh, a lot of times um, Frank will sit. And kind of, and he's done this all through Mike Kem's uh, career. Like he, he kind of sits and puts the set list together, and he's really like he has a really good perspective on putting set lists together. And he thinks he tends to think about all things. He'll think about deep cuts. He'll think, you know, he'll hit and he'll really consider the flow of a show. And sometimes we collaborate with him on those set lists. But we did know that we wanted to play Black Parade last. We felt like. This is the one to end with. Um, this this song will probably heighten the last of everyone's energy, the, all they have left for the end of the night. You know, whatever's left from the whole show is going to go into Black Parade because it did become this kind of anthem, um, and it does do something once it really kicks in. It it. You know, I can I I can kind of barely control myself once it kicks in. You know, um, especially back in the day when I would, you know, I'd be so kind of energized by what we were doing. I would like fall over, convulse, or whatever. You know, whatever else I saw I pop to. You know, um, but that something happens when, you know that ring out happens at, at the end of the introduction that has gotten very intense. And then there's like that moment of quiet and then there's just that drum fill and it just goes, you know, um, there's something about that that energizes absolutely everybody in the room, including the band, you know? So it's interesting. I think I kind of asked this, but I don't remember if we, do you, and it, it's hard, probably harder for you because you don't follow on social media. But at what point was there a moment where you started to see it become this anthem, where it went from being, you know, because again, it takes time for a song to become an anthem. A song doesn't become, even if it becomes, even if it like becomes the closing track yeah. on, you know, the Welcome to the Black Parade tour when you're doing yeah. it in arenas. Yeah. I think it takes years for a song to yeah. become an anthem. So, yeah. so was there a time where you sort of noticed or where you realized that again, it was becoming an anthem and taking on this life of its own? You know, in terms of at least the microcosm of the band, I noticed that happened fairly quickly. It does take time for sure, but I noticed 
Well, the thing about Black Parade tour as well, that lasted for like two and a half years. So, uh, so it took two and a half years or two, maybe, maybe around the, the year and a half, two year mark. We really started to see that become an anthem, you know? And most of the time, when we, especially when we did the full arena show, uh, we would play the album in order. So Black Parade would come relatively soon, you know? Uh, and then, uh, but we liked playing it in order. And whether or not that was the biggest song of the night, it happened to, I don't know, I think it's track five or six on the album. So we'd play it relatively early. Um, and I did start to see it kind of become an anthem that way. Um, it, it happened in some ways faster than I had seen other things become an anthem, you know? Yeah. Makes sense. But it's interesting because when I say it takes time over, you know, because there's a difference between, you know what I'm talking about? There's a difference between the hit song of the moment uh-huh. and an anthem, you know? Like, so even if when Led Zeppelin four comes out, Stairway to Heaven is like uh-huh. the song, it takes years before it becomes the fucking song, you know? Right, right. So yeah, so what yeah, what what I had um what I had meant, yeah, exactly. So in our universe, in the universe of My Chemical Romance, with My Chemical Romance's fans and playing these tours and headlining these shows, it had bec- it had started to become an anthem pretty quickly. In terms of it becoming an anthem for the world or a larger audience or people outside that universe that did take some time. Yeah. Um, yeah, that did take some time. And do you, do you, can you sort of, do you have an idea of when that happened or it's something that just happened gradually and it's like, okay, then you guys come back and it's like, now the song's an anthem. It would, it would, it would be, you know, even though like I don't kind of engage with social media, I don't like read reviews. I don't read anything. Um, I would hear the little stories, you know, about it. Or I would meet somebody that would say, oh, Black Parade is like my, just my, it's like my song, you know? Um, and uh, yeah, in the years the band broke up, I would, I would hear little things, you know? Um, and uh, then I started to get this sense that, oh, oh, this is like, yeah, kind of an anthem. It's like a, it's a big song to people. Um, uh, so yeah, that did, that did take some time, but I would hear little stories. That's kind of the only way I would know, you know? Yeah. Uh, you know, and that method of how I interact with the world at large, really, a lot of it, there was this, um, Maya Angelou quote, um, and I'm going to get it wrong because I still haven't found the video of it. I actually searched for it online and I, it hasn't, it's just been hard to find. So Dave Chappelle interviewed her for, I guess he was doing this interview type series thing. Okay. Post Chappelle show. There was this, you know, he had gone away, which I really related to, by the way, like when, when it had felt time to kind of end my chemical romance, like um, I found his situation, although very different from mine, obviously. Um, I, I found his situation to be very relatable, kind of being in this kind of machine that had gotten super big and kind of felt a bit out of his control and, you know, um, and then, and then kind of not wanting to do it anymore for like mental health reasons, you know, uh, anyway, 
So he he interviewed Maya Angelou, and she he had asked her something about, I guess, people's opinions or whatever. And she had said, you can't take the good, because if you take the good, you also have to own the bad, you know? And it's really true, in my opinion, like all the good stuff, all the 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 stuff that may inflate your ego and all that, like you can't take that stuff. You kind of just have to say thank you and accept that somebody feels that way about it and then kind of move on. You can't really own that and sit there and think to yourself, oh, I wrote, we wrote one of the greatest songs ever written and blah, blah, blah. You got to let that go. You know, you can't, you can't own any of it, you know? Um, so I learned to do that. You know? Yeah. It's funny. At what points did you learn to do that? And it's interesting because I was smiling as you said that, because I'll never forget interviewing Don Henley and I'm a huge Eagles fan. We were talking about it and you know, it's funny because he has a reputation for being very difficult and he can be, but I also really respect him and he's a fucking amazing songwriter. But we were talking about, I, I asked him, do you ever, you know, growing up as a kid in Texas, you know, as a music fan, do you ever process you know, the fact that you have literally two of the three biggest selling albums in American history. He's like, never. He's like, you, you never can think about that. He's like, because yeah. it would just overwhelm you. Yeah, it would. It would overwhelm you. Um, and it would, uh, I think it would trip up your current work. I think you, I think every time you would go to make something new, you would think about kind of what you've done before and in a, in a negative way, you know, like it's good to consider what you've done before when you're making new music in, in regards to like, am I repeating myself or if I am repeating myself, am I just re-exploring themes, even musical themes? You know, I sometimes do that in my, in my current work. I'll, you know, there'll be like an energy from an old song I had written with the guys or whatever, or I, or I brought in and, uh, I would say, oh, I want to explore that theme again. Like there's, there's a, there's kind of running themes in my work, um, comics and all any kind of writing I do. Um, but, uh, what, uh, I got off track though. Um, well, no, it's interesting that you say that because there's, I was an English major in school hmm. and I'm still, uh, well, I used to be a big reader. I'm not going to lie and say that I'm a big reader anymore. I still love to read, but I just, finding the time is difficult. But the reason I bring it up is there is a, a, the, there's a, uh, an idea in literature that every writer is actually just repeating the same theme and working to perfect it. You know, I think, I think that's true, you know, and I think, I think it's very true. Um, so what, what would be, and this will tie this back in with Welcome to the Black Prayer of the Song, when you look at then that, that theme for you. Yeah. What, it, what, what is the dominant one? Or is there, what is their one primary theme? And, you know, looking at perfecting it, how close did you become in Welcome to the Black Parade? I think the, for me, a theme that I explore sometimes that I definitely explored lyrically in Black Parade was the triumph of the human spirit over darkness, you know, um, over tragedy. Self-actualization has been a theme in a lot of the lyrics that I've written kind of becoming what you're supposed to become, uh, evolving, changing, cocooning into your, your, your next form, you know? Um, and I just talked about this with Billy in that interview we did. I asked him if he thought that rock was a transformative thing, specifically rock, you know? Um, and he said, yes, I think it's transformative. I, and, 
I want to get his quote right, but I think he said, I believe it's also a religious experience to some extent. He said that. Um, uh, I keep getting off track, but. Um, no, it's not off track because again, if we're talking about, you know, the idea of, of theme and your oh, theme yeah. is. Theme. Yeah. 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 Themes for sure. Yeah. So the triumph of the human spirit over darkness was something that was kind of built into the DNA of the band from the beginning, you know, uh, the self-actualization, the triumph of the spirit and things like that, getting through really hard things. Obviously I lost my grandmother before we started writing revenge and that really, that loss really impacted me because she had been the person to like sit with me and teach me how to draw or make me go to the piano with her. And she would play and she would make me sing along with her and stuff. Um, so that, you know, uh, we had a really amazing relationship. So it was that loss and wanting to get over that loss and kind of triumph over that loss to kind of make her proud that drove me in songs like Helena. Um, and then, uh, you know, there's, there's darkness in the world. And I think overcoming that darkness, that darkness externally and internally um, is a beautiful thing, you know? It's a challenging thing, but it, it is beautiful if you can do that, if you can kind of triumph over that, you know? So that's, that's a theme that's definitely in Black Parade of the Song, and it's in my work. Interesting. And, you know, I feel like, on all honesty, that's like a good wrap-up note. So what, is there anything that you want to add about Black Parade we didn't talk about? Hmm. I'm thinking of the song. Um, well, one, one little detail I just want to make sure is in there is that, you know, despite like bringing certain sections into it or altering things, or at least bringing the suggestion of altering things, you know, that song, um, like a lot of my chem stuff was really this um, collaborative experience. We're just in this kind of haunted house together kind of becoming slowly depressed um, and withdrawn and isolated from the world outside. I don't remember us ever leaving this house, you know, the Paramore. And it was a, it became a dark place and just being in there and kind of jamming this idea together and just kind of playing it together um, and getting the original bones of the song. That was, you know, that was a, really collaborative and then I found myself when tracking was and then I, I had all these ideas for changes and how to evolve the song and grow it into what again back to self-actualization I'd wanted to actualize the song you know um so that's so funny if, by the way I've spent a lot of time at the Paramore I never knew that it was supposed to be haunted yeah well that's how well yeah that's that's definitely what we felt we had heard stories about the paramore we had heard stories about someone at a party there being up in the tower and having a complete freak out you know there was this one room that was in a tower you had to climb these stairs it was a separate tower from the rest of the house and that's where frank stayed and apparently at a party somebody had lost their mind and needed to be brought out by the you know, an ambulance or something like you know. uh, I love that space though yeah it's oh it's beautiful and you know it was really nice to be able to kind of write whenever you want and just make noise and we worked so many hours every day we just get up drink coffee just play together 
play all, keep going through songs, refining them, writing new ones, and then uh, go to bed sometimes really late. Sometimes start at like midnight. We would take a break and then come back at midnight. And it was, uh, that's kind of like famous last words came about. That came about really late at night. Anyway, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Everything else good with you? Really good. And it's fucking awesome to see you, man. This is so cool. Dude, yeah, this was a blast. As always, yeah. it's always great catching up. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right, guys, dude. Take it easy. Take care. See ya. Bye. Hey, this is Steve Balton. You have been listening to the 100th episode of My Turning Point with special guest Gerard Way. Thanks. Introducing Under Armour's Infinity High Sports Bra. Its ergonomic design is molded to support the natural movement of your body. With cord-out padding, the better breathability eliminates extra bulk without sacrificing support. And quick-dry padding is Under Armour's fastest-drying padding yet. When you're lifting heavy, running fast, and pushing yourself further than ever before, you need a bra that will help you go that extra mile and make you feel your best. Shop the Infinity High Sports Bra now at UA.com. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.